0: bow and pray with me. Lord, we do thank you so much for your grace. It is rich. It is unending. It is undeserved. It is vast. And yet you give it to us freely through your son, Jesus Christ. Although we are sinful people, we do deserve judgment. You've chosen to provide a way of salvation through his death on the cross. And you call us to trust in him to receive grace, to receive life, to receive forgiveness you give it freely. Lord, we thank you for so many in this room who have received and experienced that grace. We are so thankful. Lord, we just want to confess and acknowledge our need for ongoing grace. We need more of that grace today. Not that we need to be saved all over again, but we need you to continue that work of growing us and maturing us, giving us the strength that we need each day. We need the grace that sanctifies, the grace that makes us more holy, the grace that enables us to understand and believe and obey the scriptures. We need the gracious work of your spirit today among us in this place. We ask that you would pour out your grace on us in a fresh way as we rehearse and review truths that are familiar but precious and necessary. So we pray for your help, for your grace, in Christ's name, amen. Change is a constant feature if you're a human being. A lot of things change, don't they? The date just changed. It's now 2024. Many of us have changed. We've gotten older, and it shows. Not with you guys, just with a few of us. It shows that we're getting older. Political leaders, political cycles change. We're entering into an election year. There's going to be some sort of change, for better or for worse. Laws change. The economy changes. Some of you guys watch the economy, You track those things, maybe even on a daily basis. Jobs change. Families change. People get married. People have babies. There's adoptions. Families grow. But also sometimes families change as we say goodbye. But amidst all of this change, there is one eternal thing that does not change. God. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever he says to the prophet Malachi, "I, the Lord, do not change." James 1:17 says, "With the Lord, there is no shadow or variation due to change, And because God does not change, that also means that His word does not change." As Isaiah 40 verse7 declares, "The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades." But the word of our God will stand forever. Because God does not change, and because his word does not change, what that means, therefore, as a necessary consequence is that our mission as a church does not change. Because that mission, our purpose as a people, our calling as the body of Christ, that mission is tethered to the unchanging truth of God and his word our mission here at Redemption Hill Church is that we exist to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. And that doesn't change. That's why we exist. That's our purpose. That's our goal. That's our aim. That's the point of this gathering. That's the point of our giving and our planning and our preaching and our praying and our fellowship and our serving and our singing. It's the point of our our proclamation of the gospel. In everything that we do, we want to advance that mission, that God might be glorified as we live as disciples of Christ and call others to do the same. We began meeting as a church exactly nine years ago. Our first Sunday morning service was actually January 8th of 2015. And a lot has changed since then. Even though I see several faces in the room that were there that morning in our living room, there's been a lot that's changed. There's more people. We've met in a number of different facilities. We've added staff since then. We've seen people saved and baptized and buried. But our mission has not changed. We exist to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. So no matter what things we may leave behind us as time moves forward, and no matter what things may be new this upcoming year, the mission of our church remains the same. And so what I want to do today is consider that mission sort of pick it apart and evaluate it because we need to know what it is we're supposed to be doing, where it is that we are going. We cannot lose sight of that. And, and we firmly believe that this mission is not something that's unique. It's not something that's been formulated to differentiate us from other churches. We simply think this is a good summary of what all faithful biblical orthodox churches have been doing for thousands of years. Seeking to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. So let's pull that mission apart and examine it. And the first point I want to present for your consideration this morning is this. Number one, our unchanging goal is the glory of God. And that means that your worship matters for the mission. Our unchanging goal as a church is the glory of God. And that means that your worship matters for the mission. The goal of everything we do, the aim in all things, is ultimately, when it all is said and done, if you boil it all down, the bottom line, the ultimate aim is to glorify God. That is what must control what we do, why we do it, how we do it. It is the glory of God. That's the goal. Now, glorifying God is one of those phrases that we might use often. It's something that's thrown around in the church. You might call it Christianese. It's a familiar phrase, but what does it actually mean to glorify God? We need to be able to define it if we're going to seek to do it. Well, I think we can break down that concept of glorifying God into two simple ideas. First, to glorify God means that in all things, God must be praised, That's what we mean when we say we're seeking to glorify God, is that we want him to be praised. Glorifying God means giving him all the credit. It means giving him honor. It means giving him thanks. It means proclaiming his worthiness and his majesty to glorify God means that in all things he must be praised. It means that the song of our heart that is on repeat is Psalm 115, verse 1, which says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. That's a heart that seeks to glorify God. A faithful Christian, a faithful church, will seek in all things to see God praised. Not to compete with him for glory. Not to rob him of glory. Not to be silent when praise is due. Glorifying God means first and foremost that in all things he must be praised. There's a second aspect of what it means to glorify God. Not only do we want God to be praised in all things, but we also want God to be pleased in all things. We want God to be pleased. Our aim in everything we do is to please our master. To live and act in such a way that seeks his smile that seeks his approval, that seeks his pleasure. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says that our whole lives as believers are to be offered to God as one continual, ongoing act of worship, that is acceptable to God. We seek to live in a way that pleases him. He says, this is your spiritual worship. This is a life that glorifies God. It's a life that strives to honor him and to to please him. 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That's what it means to glorify God. We want him to be praised. We ascribe honor and glory and thanks to him, but we also want him to be pleased. We strive to live in such a way that brings his smile. So the question is why? Why must the glory of God be our highest priority? Why is it so important that we as individuals and that we collectively as a church strive to glorify God over all things? Well, the reason this must be our ultimate aim is because this is God's ultimate aim. And it's important that we connect those things together. Everything that God does is for his own glory. For example, he created the world to display his glory. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. He created us for his glory. Isaiah 43, 7, God says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. It's not just the the skies and the stars and the solar system that that declare the glory of God. We are created to display and declare the glory of God. God also saves sinners to display his glory. As Paul tells the Ephesians three times in Ephesians chapter 1, he saved us to the praise of his glorious grace. His ultimate purpose in saving sinners like you and me, sending his son to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be adopted into his family, so that we could be reconciled with him and made new. The purpose in that was ultimately for his own glory. God judges his enemies to display his glory. In the book of Exodus, God tells Moses that he is going to go to war with Pharaoh. He says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The purpose of the plagues, the the, the 10 plagues that fell in Egypt, the purpose of the Red Sea splitting in half and allowing the whole nation of Israel to go through and then collapsing down and crushing the armies of Pharaoh, the purpose in all of that was so that God could get glory over Pharaoh and his host, both salvation and judgment. Are for the glory of God. According to the prophet Habakkuk, God's purpose in the world, Habakkuk 2:14, is that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's God's purpose. And he reminds us in Isaiah 42:8, he says, "I am the Lord, that is my name; my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He is jealous for his Glory. So God's highest priority in all that he does, whether it be creation or salvation or judgment or his purposes for the entire world, God's purpose in all things is the glory of God. And so if God seeks to glorify God in all he does, shouldn't our aims be submitted to his? Shouldn't our purpose be to further his goal and his agenda? If we are submitted to God and we worship God and we love God, then we will seek the glory of God. Romans eleven thirty six 36 says that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That's the conclusion. The death sentence of the church is when the glory of God is exchanged for something lesser. When we seek praise from man for ourselves, When we seek praise for man, when we seek our own pleasure at the expense of God's pleasure, or if we seek the approval of the culture rather than the pleasure and the approval of God, then we will end up failing to accomplish the mission for which Christ has called us. We exist to glorify God, which means there must be a radical God-centeredness in the church. And here's where that gets personal if we exist collectively as a church to glorify God, then that means that your worship matters for the mission. A church is its members. The church is is not just some institution. It's not just some amorphous idea. It's people. It's individuals. It's you and it's me. And the church cannot be healthier or more holy or more mature or more faithful than the sum of its parts. So if we exist as a church to glorify God, that means your worship matters for the mission. Consider this. Are you a person who lives resolutely for the glory of God in all things? Is that your highest aim? Is that your purpose? Is that your highest desire? Is that your greatest goal? Have you embraced the fact that you were created for this purpose? He made you for his glory. If you're a believer here this morning, you've believed in the gospel. He saved you for his glory. He saved you for this purpose, which means you can either push against that reality or you can embrace it. You can either neglect this high calling to live for the glory of God, or you can press in. But listen, Redemption Hill Church will only be faithful and fruitful in glorifying God if its members are committed to glorifying God. You personally have to buy in. Your worship matters for the mission. That means your personal life of worship matters. It's that Romans 12 idea of living each day as a sacrifice to God. Will you do that in 2024? Will you live for the glory, the pleasure, the praise of God? Or will you live for the glory, the pleasure, the praise of yourself? It's a choice. When I was a kid, we sang this little chorus, At our church, there's just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. Maybe you know that one. It stuck with me because it's true. That's the choice we all face on a daily basis. You'll either seek to please God or please yourself. You'll either seek his approval or seek the approval of the people around you. You will either conform to the will of God as it's revealed in his word, or you will conform to the culture, the world around us. Your personal life of worship matters. the mission. But also your, your participation in corporate worship matters. You see, worship and living for the glory of God is not just a personal project at home. It's also something that happens here. It's something that we do together. Will you engage in the life of the church more than just even Sunday morning, but the life of this body? Will you engage in the life of the church this year in such a way that God is praised and that God is pleased? Will you bring with you when you come into this church that kind of heart? Will you bring that heart with you into the relationships that you participate in in this body? Into the service that you participate in? The ministries that you're involved in? Will you bring with you a heart that is radically committed to the glory of God? Over and against all other things. Because that matters. Even the way we show up on Sunday to church matters. How you praise God here matters. Your singing, your fellowship, the way you engage with the preaching of God's word matters. You can either come with a cold heart or you can come with fervency. You can either either come with a distracted mind or thoughts that are fixed on the glorious Christ. How you come to church will even affect and impact the effectiveness of this church and its mission. You can either come with a dead sense of duty or with a hunger for God and a joy in the gospel and a zeal for his glory. Our unchanging goal is the glory of God, and that means, friends, that your worship matters for the mission. There's a second aspect to this mission. We exist to glorify God by, first of all, being disciples of Jesus. Our unchanging identity this is point number two. Our unchanging identity as disciples means that your sanctification matters for the mission of the church. Our unchanging identity as disciples of Jesus Christ means that your sanctification matters for the mission. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what Christ calls us to. Self-denial, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. We exist to glorify God by being disciples of Jesus. And a disciple simply means a follower. Perhaps you're new to Christianity, or you're, you're, you're not a believer, and you're kind of trying to figure all this out. Let, let me make this clear. A disciple is not like a special category of Christian. A disciple is a Christian. A Christian is a disciple. And if you're not a disciple, if you're not following Jesus, if you're not denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him, it just means you're not a Christian. They should be synonymous. You're either a faithful disciple or a, a poor, unfaithful disciple. But a disciple is a follower. That's simply what it means. But make no mistake, following Jesus is no simple matter, is it? It requires repentance. To be a follower of Jesus requires repentance. That's the denial of self. It's a radical turning of sin and self to submit to Christ. Discipleship starts with repentance. And it also requires faith. When you take up your cross, it's because you believe it's worth it. It's because you believe in the gospel. It's because you believe that following Jesus is the only path to life. And you believe that he will keep his promises to you discipleship requires repentance it also requires faith you trust his word you're not trusting your own wisdom you're not trusting in your own strength but rather relying on his grace trusting in his promise you're following Jesus this response of repentance and faith the necessary response to the gospel it's not simply a one-time decision either it really just begins a new way of life for a disciple A follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, is one who lives a life that is radically centered on Christ. Christ is the Savior we are trusting in. Christ is the master that we are submitting to. Christ is the teacher that we are learning from. He's the example that we are following. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. And the result of this life of discipleship, someone who's a follower of Jesus, the result of all of that is change in us. It produces holiness. It produces spiritual maturity. It results in Christ-likeness. We become like the one that we are learning from. We become like the one more and more as time goes on that we are following. As we leave our old life behind, our old identity, our old commitments, our old priorities, and we follow Jesus, it changes us. We grow, we mature, and we make progress in sanctification just a big word that means your growth in holiness, your growth in Christ-likeness. That happens as we obey his commands. Our faith produces good works. We begin to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And this is ultimately God's purpose for us. In Romans eight twenty nine, it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, God's plan to save you includes not just rescuing you from hell. His plan to save you includes making you more and more like Jesus so that you reflect his glory. So our unchanging identity as disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, that means that your sanctification matters for the mission. We seek to glorify God by being disciples of Jesus. This is what results... In more praise for God. And this is what pleases God. This is His purpose. So, this is what we give ourselves to this pursuit of Christ and Christ's likeness. So, again, let's make this personal. If your sanctification matters for the mission, it means that in your life, Christian, there must be an increasing maturity, an increasing holiness, an increase of wisdom and good works. It may be slow. It may be two steps forward, one step backwards. But God calls you to grow in Christ's likeness. If the church is filled with people who resist the authority of Jesus, if the church is filled with people who do not follow him, who are not interested in becoming more like him, if the church is filled with people whose faith and repentance has become anemic and stagnant, that kind of church is simply not going to be effective in its mission. That kind of church is not the kind of church that will be greatly used by God to display his glory in the world. That kind of church will not be blessed by God and it will not bring him much glory. So are there some things that maybe need to change for you to embrace your part in this larger mission as you follow Jesus? This progress in spiritual maturity It's necessary, but it doesn't happen simply by wishful thinking. It's not like you can just kind of lay around in church like you get a suntan and just soak it up. It actually requires participation on your part. Yes, it is ultimately God's work. Yes, it is his grace that that enables and accomplishes all of this change. But this grace does not operate outside of or apart from our participation, Growth in Christ-likeness takes faith-filled, grace-dependent effort. If that language of personal effort makes you uncomfortable, let me read 2 Peter 1.5 to you. For this very reason, Peter writes, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Holy effort that leads to growth in grace that keeps us from being ineffective and unfruitful. That's what the apostle Peter calls us to. And not only takes effort, it also may take in your life a holy spiritual violence. Colossians 3.5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. To become more like Christ is not some casual endeavor. It's not something that's easy. It's something that may require spiritual violence as we put to death what is earthly in us, desires, attitudes, habits, that run against the grain of what Christ calls us to. We are to be at war with sin. And it is by waging war on sin that we are submitting to Christ and and we are positioned to receive his grace. That's what he wants to strengthen and, and that's what he wants to empower. That is his will for us, is our sanctification. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So when we strap on our spiritual armor, when we declare war on sin, when we give spiritual effort to doing violence against the flesh, we're standing in the middle of the stream of God's grace. That's what his sovereign purpose is driving towards. And it requires that we actively choose to follow Christ. Ephesians 4 says we're to put off the old self and put on the new. These are commands to be obeyed. If we are going to be disciples of Jesus, a disciple is a follower, and a follower follows Christ, obeys Christ, becomes more like Christ. So are you following him? Are you growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you growing in wisdom and in holiness? Are you making progress in sanctification? If not, I might ask you, what steps do you need to take? Are there sins that need to be put to death? Are there areas of spiritual neglect in your life that call for effort and obedience Let me encourage you, if there are, take action today. And as you do, ask God for help and believe that he will. Because ultimately, this work is something that God does in us by his grace. So you can be confident that you can have success because you have God on your side. And he is the one who ultimately produces and completes this work in us. So depend on him, but you have to act. You must obey. Perhaps you need to start reading the Bible regularly. Maybe that's something that's missing from your growth in likeness. Maybe you need to start just coming to Sunday school so that you can be equipped, so that you can be taught to grow your knowledge of the word. Perhaps you need to join a small group or a Bible study, and you need to make the gathering of the saints a priority because there's people here that can help you. We need each other in this process of sanctification. You can't do it alone. The more, the more urgently you begin to feel about this call to follow Christ, the more gladly you will accept and lay hold of every resource and every opportunity to do so. Someone who is eager and insistent and passionate about following Jesus doesn't have to be coerced to participate in the life of the church. They say, if that's where the word is, if that's where the spirit is working, if that's where holiness is being cultivated, then that's where I want to be. I want to participate. Give me more, not less. Listen, this life of following Jesus and becoming like him, this calling to pursue Christ's likeness as a disciple of Jesus, this is more urgent than your to-do list at home. It's more needful than your hobbies. It's more meaningful ultimately than the infinite amount of kids' activities and family plans and all of these career paths and education and everything you fill in the blank. A disciple is a follower of Jesus who denies self and is willing to forsake anything to follow Jesus. We exist to glorify God by being disciples of Jesus. That's our unchanging identity, which means that your sanctification matters for the mission of the church. Thirdly, our unchanging call to make disciples means that your ministry matters for the church. Our unchanging call to make disciples means that, friends, your ministry matters for the church. So again, we exist to glorify God by not only being, but also making disciples of Jesus, which means that your ministry matters. In Matthew chapter 28, following the resurrection, Jesus is speaking with his disciples before he ascends into heaven. And he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The famous passage known as the Great Commission. And in it, Jesus gives us our marching orders, bound up in being a follower of Jesus is the responsibility to call other people to follow Jesus as well and to help them along the way. Being disciples means we are to make disciples. And this is a command that is rooted in the authority of Christ and empowered by the ongoing presence of his spirit. He says, all authority has been given to me. And he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's how important this call is. So what does it mean to make disciples? How do we do that? Well, first of all, we seek to make disciples in the world. Jesus says, Go into all the nations. He says, You need to tell people who don't know. We need to tell people who haven't yet heard, or perhaps they have heard, but they haven't yet believed. We are to proclaim to them the good news of the gospel. Luke 24, 46. Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Our mandate is to make disciples, and the means by which this mandate will be accomplished is the proclamation of the Gospels, the proclamation of the death of Christ and his resurrection and the necessity of repentance and faith so that sinners can receive the gift of salvation. Romans ten fourteen says, How will they call on him? in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Our unchanging mandate, our task as disciples of Jesus is to make disciples. And that means that your ministry matters. For the mission, we are witnesses who tell a story, aren't we? We testify to others of the truth. We give a report about what we've experienced, what the Lord has done for us, how He has rescued us from our slavery to sin, how He's given us spiritual life, how He's given us hope of eternity in glory with Him. As those who have received and believed in the gospel, as those who have tasted of God's salvation in Christ, we preach it to the world. We proclaim it with the authority of Christ and as the very power of God for salvation. But it's not just the people out there who need your ministry. Yes, we make disciples by sharing the gospel with the lost. We invite them to follow Jesus, to become disciples with us. But this task of making disciples also includes ministry within the church. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, that these newly minted disciples, these brand new followers of Jesus who are baptized, that marks them off as having um, made this commitment to follow Christ. He says that they are to be taught. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's a process for followers of Jesus that, that we are to contribute to their spiritual growth. Making disciples means not just sharing the good news with the lost, but also building up and strengthening and encouraging and equipping the saints. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. This work of discipleship is to be the work of spiritual leaders. For example, Galatians 4.19, Paul writes to the church and he addresses them as my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's what ministry feels like, Paul says. He says, I feel like it's the anguish of childbirth. I am striving. I am suffering. I am pushing. I am yearning to see Christ formed in you, to see you reach that spiritual maturity that God desires for you. In Colossians 1.28, Paul writes to that church. He says, of Christ, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, I'm, I'm toiling, I'm struggling, I'm laboring to present all of you mature in Christ. He's pouring his life into them so that they become who Christ wants them to be. The apostle John writes in 3 John verse four, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You see, the life of the disciple is not just a life that's concerned with your own sanctification, with your own growth. It's a life that becomes committed to and concerned for the spiritual well-being of the people around you, the people that God has brought into this family called the church. It's not just the work of spiritual leaders. It's not just for apostles and pastors. This work of, of discipleship is also supposed to be the work of really anyone in the church who's mature in the faith. Listen to Titus 2. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled." Paul says the pattern for life in the church is that those who are mature and experienced in the faith are to help those who are not as far along. In Galatians 6.1, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, meaning you who are mature, spiritually mature, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ." This is the work of those who are mature, that there's a care and a concern and an investment in the people around them. If they need to be taught, if they need to be restored, if they need to be helped, whatever it may be, there's a willingness to engage in the spiritual development of the people around you. This is also the work of parents. Ephesians 6.4 says, "'Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord.'" Parents, the way you raise your kids is discipleship. Your highest goal is training them to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. It's really the work of the whole church. It's leaders, it's parents, it's the older, it's the younger. You may be 10 years old in this room this morning, but you can still obey the command of Hebrews chapter 10.24. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It doesn't matter where you're at in your spiritual life, how old, how young, how inexperienced, how experienced, you can encourage someone. And you can think about, how can I stir them up to love Christ and love people? How can I stir them up and help motivate them to to do good works? That's something that the whole church is called to discipleship, this ministry of discipleship is not just a task for a few highly qualified specialists in the church. This is the work of the ministry that you are called to. Friends, if we're going to make disciples, that means your ministry to others matters. There's spiritual needs around you. It might be that someone in your life needs help learning how to study the Bible. Can you help them? It may be that they need someone to simply pray with. Can you do that? It might be that they need encouragement in the battle against sin. Will you share scripture with them and encourage them so they don't grow weary? It might be that someone needs training in biblical doctrine. Can you show them the clear teaching of scripture and help them steer clear of of the many errors and the false teaching that's out there in the world? It may be that someone needs Counsel and advice to navigate a difficult situation. Will you walk through that with them? There's spiritual needs all around. Making disciples may be a formal process, or it might be informal. It might be something that's scheduled and intentional, or it might be something that is impromptu and organic. There's a million ways we can do it. But the, es- the essence of discipling fellow believers is simply helping them to follow Jesus, whatever, they, whatever that may entail. And listen, this experience of both giving and receiving this kind of ministry within the church, this is Christ's design. This is God's plan for the church. When Jesus calls someone to himself, when he calls them to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him, he's calling that person out of the world, but he's calling them into the church. He's calling them into this new and sometimes unique community. Of people, And it's not always a natural fit at first, is it, to be part of the church? We're a unique mix. The original disciples, they too, they found themselves joined together in a surprising mix. It was tax collectors and fishermen and political revolutionaries. There was all sorts of people that Jesus called together in the early church. And so today, Christ joins together people that are very different. Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, old and the young, the highly educated, and the barely graduated, right? There's all sorts that are here people from the country, people from the city, people from all across the social and political spectrum. He brings us all together in the church. He adopts us into his family. We become sheep and his flock. We are members of one body and part of belonging to this community, part of belonging to this family called the church, part of being a disciple. Means embracing your part in the church. This is the context. The church is the context for our growth in Christ's likeness. There's no such thing as an isolated disciple that's a faithful disciple. You do not please God, meaning you do not glorify Him, if you refuse to live out your faith in the context of the local church. We follow Christ together. We serve Christ together. We grow in Christ together, which means we have to personally engage with each other for the sake of our mutual growth in Christ. Friends, your ministry to others matters for the mission. Are you engaging in this ministry to others, both in the world and in the church? This can feel a bit overwhelming, can't it? There's millions of people who need to hear the gospel out there. And there's hundreds, if not thousands, of spiritual needs right here in this room today. How can one person possibly meet all those needs? You can't. And God isn't asking you to. He wants you to be like that child. I love the story in the gospels. Who brings his lunch to Jesus because there's thousands of people that need to eat. And Jesus takes those simple and limited resources... And he does something through those resources that is far above and beyond what anyone there would have thought that day. Our resources are nothing compared to the need, but the need is nothing compared to God's power and God's grace. He is sufficient, so we don't have to be. He simply asks us to obey him, to simply offer our simple actions of faith and obedience as we seek to invest in the lives of other people around us, to help them follow Jesus, to share the gospel, to encourage a Christian. Is there there one person in your life that you could share the gospel with? Then do it. Is there an opportunity you have to do spiritual good to another person in this body? Then do it. Contribute to their growth in Christ. Help them in an area of weakness. Encourage them. Challenge them. Walk with them. Comfort them. Whatever is needed. Your ministry matters. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brothers. This is addressed to the church, not to pastors. We urge you, brothers. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Friends, you don't have to do everything, but you must do something. Your ministry matters. Your ministry to others matters for the mission of the church. Our unchanging mission is to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. That doesn't change. So do you understand the task that's before us? You know, at the beginning of a year, we often... We reflect on the year behind. We make plans for the year to come. Some of you might make New Year's resolutions. One of my roles as a leader is to simply remind the church, this is who we are. This is where we're going. And to encourage you, to cast a vision to say, "Will you jump on board and participate. Because as individuals, you can either contribute, you can either participate, you can grab an oar and pull at that oar with the rest of us, or you can be dead weight. Or even worse, you can actually actually oppose that mission by valuing pursuing something other than the glory of God, by neglecting to personally follow Christ, by refusing to engage in the spiritual development of other people. If you're not personally committed and invested in this mission, if you're not actively participating, I want you to ask the question, why? Why? And what might need to change so that you can perhaps step off the sidelines and roll up your sleeves and join us in this joyful privilege to be part of the church, to be part of what God is doing in the world for his glory. For you, maybe it looks like a needed change in your personal walk with Christ. Maybe it looks like a deeper commitment and involvement in the local church. Maybe you need to become a member or get involved in a Bible study or a small group. Maybe you need to start serving in one of the ministries of our church. So whatever that is that the Lord wants you to do, I want to encourage you. Again, you don't have to do everything. Just do one thing. Tell the Lord Jesus Christ that as you seek to follow him and obey him, that you're willing to serve him in whatever ways he would have you to do. And be encouraged. Be encouraged that this mission is something we do collectively. It's something we do together as the church. Paul describes the church as a body, and when each part is working and functioning as it should, he says in Ephesians, that the whole body builds itself up in love. We pursue these things in cooperation with, in dependence on, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I can tell you that there is a great joy that is found in being part of what God is doing, seeing Him at work through our imperfect and sometimes inconsistent efforts to serve Him. God is doing great things. It's been amazing to see what he's done over the last nine years at Redemption Hill Church. We've done our best, but it's not been perfect. And we can't take the glory for it. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Will you continue to help us seek to accomplish this mission? To glorify God by being and making disciples of Christ? I hope that will describe our, our vision and our focus this coming year that we would strive side by side together with one mind, like Paul says in Philippians, for the sake of the gospel, for the faith of the gospel, as we continue to follow Jesus, as we continue to call others to follow Jesus, as we continue to help others follow Jesus, all for the glory of God. Would you bow and pray with me?